everybody, and welcome back to East Screen, West Screen. This is episode number 12 for Wednesday, November 4th, 2009. Once again, I'm Paul Fox. And escaped from the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival is Kevin Ma. Well, it's good to hear from you, Kevin. I'm glad you survived. Yes, just missed one film. Well, that's, that's pretty 20. good. So you originally were slated to see 22, so you ended up seeing 21. 21 plus uh, three more non-festival ones. But uh, Ross got free up on me, so he's got 27. I'm at 24. Yeah, he's the record holder for this year. It's yeah. quite a defeat. I said next year I'm doing 30. Sure. <laughs> you guys are insane. Um, so how was your Halloween? Um, rather uneventful. I stayed home. As you saw on my Twitter, I, I went home and had some uh, pudding. That was the closest thing to sweets I had. How about you, Paul? Go on, party. Uh, not well. Usually every year I like to hold a Halloween party, but as it as it turned out, uh, school graduation was held on Saturday. So I was off at the graduation ceremony for most of the day, which meant I didn't have a lot of time to do any preparation for Halloween or anything. So basically, um, got together with my girlfriend and her family, and I, I tried to get them into sort of the Halloween spirit, but Halloween's not a celebration that's really celebrated in quite the same way as it is in um as it is in Hong Kong. But, you know, we had dinner and, and I, I put on um, Evil Dead 2 and <laughs> they were just bored out of their mind because, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the Evil Dead movies, but Evil Dead 2 is a little bit corny. And, you know, it's a 1980s movie, so the effects are not all that all that great, you know, looking at it today. But it's for me, it's still a really fun film. And I like to one of the films I like to watch at Halloween and they they really didn't want any part of it. They kept rolling their eyes at, at the various <laughs> scenes and things. Uh, damn it! I said I was all right! Are you listening to me? Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm all right! I'm all right. Okay. Maybe you are. But for how long? If we're going to beat this thing, we need those pages. Then let's head down into that cellar and carve ourselves a witch. <laughs> but and it was it was fun. The weekend before we had ended, we ended up going to the um Disney theme park and they had some pretty pretty fun Halloween um Halloween things over there. It was the first time for me to be at, at Disney in Hong Kong. Uh you know, I've been living here since it since it opened back in uh 05 and just never had any real desire to go. I guess in part because I grew up in Florida where every year we went up to Disney World and uh, the park here is considerably smaller in terms of the space and in terms of some of the attractions that they offer. But I'm a big Halloween buff, so I wanted to go and see um, some of their Halloween stuff. And one of the haunted attractions they had this year was this, you know, this like science fiction alien abduction encounter haunted house kind of thing. Yeah, the really uh, scary trailers played at the theaters here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, they had like Simon Yam come out for the for the original promotion um sort of as like a man in black kind of a thing and you, you can see some of those trailers on youtube but overall it was i mean it, if you've seen the trailer for that the trailer looks pretty amazing and looks pretty creepy but you know inside the haunted house it's nothing like that really <laughs> it's just uh because you know disney's for kids so they can't really do uh too much that's overly scary Oh, it's good to see Simon Yam getting work when he's not stopping pirates, he's stopping aliens. Yeah. Well, we're going to see him, you know, in just about a month with uh, Stormwriters 2. So he'll be stopping Ekin and Aaron. All right, let's uh, move on to talk about some of our news. Um, the first little bit of news is related to Disney, and that is that the Shanghai uh, Disney has gotten approval from the Beijing government to open their park in Shanghai. And this has um, a lot of news being discussed here currently in Hong Kong with what are the impacts going to be on the Hong Kong park? Um, is it going to draw tourism away? 
Um, does the government need to allocate more land reclamation and more money to try and expand the park in order to sort of keep the competition up? Um, and this is probably going to be something that people are going to be talking about and debating about for a while. Kevin, have you been out to Hong Kong Disney? No, no, I, it's too expensive. And the thing is, I never been a big fan of Disneyland. Yeah. So, but uh, Paul, you said you, you went to the Hong Kong one for the first time. What do you think compared to the, to the Florida one? Well, it's, I mean, Florida's incredible. Florida's because even compared with California, Florida's got Epcot, it's got Animal Kingdom, it's got the MGM Studios. So there's just a whole lot in Florida to choose from. And they've done a lot of development. But if you just look at Disney itself, Disney World, compared with uh, the Disneyland here, um, even the park itself is considerably smaller. You're, you're missing out on much of Frontierland obviously, because that I guess that's very deeply rooted in American culture, and they figured that wouldn't sell as well over here. So you don't have things that are deeply seated in American history, like the Hall of Presidents or the Country Bear Jamboree or things like this, the Riverboat Ride. Um, so, there, you know, it, it is a considerably smaller park, but it's got a smaller price tag, too, because when I went to Disney... Um, this past summer when I was back in Florida, um, the tickets were much more expensive than the, the tickets are here. So there is some price adjustment based on the fact that there's not that much to do at the Disney park. My big thing with the Hong Kong Disney park is it's not that convenient to get to because you have to, oh, kinda, no, not at all. you have to kind of go out way out to, um, uh, Lantau Island to one station. And then you've got to wait, do a, do a train change to get on the Disney train that'll take you over to the Disney park. Um, it's just not, it's not really that convenient to get there. Um, well, then again, in Tokyo, Disneyland is not very convenient to get to because if you live in Tokyo, you know that it's way off in the Eastern Tokyo. So you have to take a train to, from where you live to Tokyo station and take another 30 minutes train ride, then the monorail. So I don't, I don't, um, the, the whole inconvenience thing is not just a mm. Hong Kong exclusive thing, yeah. Now, you were from California, right, Kevin? Yeah, yeah. yeah did you ever go to the California park? Well, I went to the one in LA, like, in high school, second year. That was the last time I went. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't remember much about it. I mean, that was the only Disney I've ever been to. Um, you know, and so I don't really have any, a lot of really memory about the park itself and i've only been to disney sea in japan so it's a completely different type of park yeah, yeah. it's a one that that um that appeals more to adults and actually i think a disney sea idea would succeed here in hong kong if they actually get on their their butts and start expanding yeah yeah they, i think they definitely need to, need to think about doing some expansion especially because not only do you have the shanghai shanghai park going in but then you've got uh, universal studios um, and that whole thing being sort of produced by Spielberg over in Singapore. So there's going to be a lot of options for people to choose from. And uh, suddenly maybe the Disney park is not looking all that hot for Hong Kong. Well, but if, the, if, if tourists come to Hong Kong, I think they're not going to come purely for Disney. Just like people when they go to Shanghai, they're not going purely for the upcoming Shanghai Disneyland. So I think the impact wouldn't be as bad as everyone expects just because of Shanghai Disneyland. If anything, it's because of a lack of expansion, mm -hmm. high ticket prices, yeah. and, you know, just generally size. Hey! <laughs> Is that better? <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to talk about some film news. Um, first little bit of news we have um, coming from Hong Kong is that the Hong Kong film The Stool Pigeon uh, had began, begun filming earlier this week. Um, Kevin, do you know any of the details behind this film? Um, it's um, supposedly the, well, it's not sequel to, to Beastalker, but it is the same team. So you got Dante Lam directing, uh, Jack Moon as a screenwriter. You also have uh, Nicholas Se and uh, Nick Chernback, um, Nora Mao. But this time you got a, you got the roles reversed. So while... Nicholas, well, uh, Nick Chen will now play a policeman. I believe uh, Nicholas say will be the bad guy. So hopefully this time is is Nick Nick will, will get the acting breakthrough. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think that the the magic will strike again? Do you think this is a a team that uh, can't lose? 
Um, I think they've got enough solid actors. I mean, remember Beast Stalker was quite good because not only of the really tight uh, writing uh, and directed by Dante, because a lot of it kind of performances. And, you know, as, as much as the attention went to Nick Chern, I thought Nicholas was actually quite solid in the film. And it would be interesting to see him play a bad guy here, because I don't remember... Okay, the promise doesn't count, because he had the pimp stick, and he's not really a serious bad guy. So it would be interesting to see him play a serious bad guy for once. Uh, another bit of film news we have. Uh, Zhang Yimou is remaking Blood Simple, and I think that's due fairly soon. I think next month, is that correct? Do you have any impressions on the original and what you might think about the remake? Just judging by the story, um, one would see that Zhang Yimou is trying to do something different here um, from his usual body of work. Um, and not necessarily something you might see in Chinese cinema all the time, which is kind of a gray, grayish um, tale. Uh, dark comedy. Um, I have my doubts, but it'll be interesting to see John Yumo not doing the two genres that he sort of excels at doing these days, trying something new. Um, I, pres- I, I kind of look forward to it. How about you, Paul? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not that... I typically don't get that excited about remakes, um, but I think, if anything, this will sort of push me to get out there and watch Blood Simple before I go and, and see this film. Um, I, I know that there there has been sort of a trend in mainland cinema with borrowing more from, you know, uh, concepts from overseas. I mean, I'm thinking back to like The Banquet um, and uh, what was, there was another one, I, it's on the tip of my tongue that I can't remember, that was um, also a remake. And you've had this going on for years, obviously, with Hollywood borrowing lots of stuff, you know, from The Ring, The Grudge, Infernal Affairs and whatnot. Um, I'm not really sure if 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 I'm ready to see a lot of mainland remakes of of Hollywood films, though. Um, I think it'd be interesting to, to see that tale um, taken into Chinese system. Maybe maybe Zhang Yimou will be smart enough to put in something about Chinese society, Chinese people, and make it something his own. Or he could be doing the commercial things because it is financed by Sony um, and just copy it straight to China. Um, all right, a last little bit of local news. Uh, just mentioned this in passing, uh, and I'll post a link to this on the show notes. Uh, local author Nuri Vitachi had an article today um, in The Standard where he was talking a little bit about some of the censorship issues that uh, local filmmakers and mainland filmmakers have when it comes to topics like ghost stories and gangster films and things. And um, he he often writes you know, with a with a smile in the corner of his mouth, and he's got a very keen sense of humor in his writing. So I think it's very relevant to some of the things we talk about, and I'll post a link to that um, on the show notes. Uh, so if you're interested in issues of censorship and you'd like to see Mr. Vitachi's uh, criticism, in, in, which is basically what he's doing, is criticizing some of those practices, um, you can follow the link over to his article. All right, let's talk a little bit about some news from abroad. Um, Kevin, you sent me a link to a bit of news here about the Korean film The Housemaid um, getting a makeover or a remake, as it were. What are, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, this is a fairly popular film in as Korean films go. Um, do you yeah, think a yeah. remake's necessary? Um, honestly, if you've seen The Housemaid, and I'll talk about some more later because um, it's my video pick of the week, um, The Housemaid was made nearly 50 years ago, so one can expect that it is extremely dated. Um, the dialogue's very old-fashioned, the acting is melodramatic beyond anything you might see today, and just some of the violence is, is very, is, 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 um, seems really tame. So it'll be interesting to see The Housemaid, which was very trashy, even watching it now, that it was very, it's very trashy. And um, I guess in a matter of morals, it's quite shocking. Um, so I think, I don't know if, if uh, one of the most beloved Korean films ever should be remade, but it seems like they have a very respectable people, group of people doing it. Im Sang-soo is, um, actually a really surprising pick for me because he's um, a more politically 
motivated director. Um, he does a lot of sort of satire, things like that. So I didn't expect him to take a project like this. And John Doo Young, we, we know she's a great actress. She's won, won Best Actress at Cannes for Secret Sunshine and for films like Happy End. And we know she's one of the best actresses in, they, they have in Korea. So, you know, they, I don't think they could even, they, they couldn't have picked a better team to do this mm-hmm. for, for a remake, as far as remake goes. And and you're going to come back and talk a little bit about the original um, for our video yes. picks a bit later. Yes. Um, all right, before we move on to our East screen, I do want to talk a little bit about a film that's opening up here next week, and that is 2012. Um, I've seen the trailer for this. I'm assuming you've seen it, Kevin. Yes, and yeah. um, actually I will have to review it within uh, a day next because I'm having this job where I'm also a well, movie critic for another website. I'll send you a link later about that Paul. Okay. And so you're going to be rushing out to uh to watch this. Are you it's excited? Opening. Honestly, if have you seen the uh extended scene that is put online Paul? There's mm. a 5 minute scene of uh, Los Angeles um essentially sinking into water, John Cusack the limo driver uh being the only only man in all of LA to actually be able to drive through a collapsing Los Angeles and make it make make his way to an airport in the south town. Yeah, well, I guess if anybody could do it, a limo driver could. It's John Cusack. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, do with, with two hands in the air, holding a radio. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I haven't seen. I haven't seen that scene. Um, I will likely go out and and watch the movie. Although I'm not a huge fan of you know the big disaster films. I was very disappointed with um, Day After Tomorrow. Uh, Armageddon I like because it's it's somewhat science fiction and but it's definitely over the top and and a bit cheesy and i'm expecting uh, a lot more of that here i just find it amazing that you know that people will get so worked up over these films that are that are so negative i mean um we were talking a couple weeks ago about um what is it hyundai you know the the super tidal wave movie in in korea and i remember you were saying that you know, by the end, they sort of gloss over the fact that all these people have died, um, you know, through, through, through the event of this film. But I just, you know, I don't know, maybe there's something inherent in us that we like to go out and we like to see, you know, large scale tragedies like this because we can, we can view it, but at the same time, it's sort of safe viewing because we know that maybe nothing bad is really happening. I don't know. What, what, what do you think? It's just so sad because in the clip, um, you see all these people, all these stuff collapsing, and yet they cut away before you actually see anyone die. Mm-hmm. It's just disaster sanitized for mass viewing. You just got these people paying money to see like the upcoming Feng Shaogang movie or the um, Day After Tomorrow, and then they go home and they turn on the TV and turn on the air conditioning, and they would think nothing of it. Mm-hmm. And they would buy the Blu-rays and play on the huge big screen TV. This, I don't, I don't really think that these sort of big budget blockbusters showing you know, the end of the world. I don't, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, distasteful, mm. I think. Yes, I mean, if, as far as, as much as I don't like this Japanese disaster film called Japan Sinks, at least it had the guts to show, actually show people dying. Yeah. Like it tells you, it shows you the scary side of things. So it yeah. scares you into what's going on. Instead yeah, but, of just I mean, you this is, this, this is a, you know, a cinema with a tradition of, not treating the the local population of Japan very well when you've got you know a 20-story <laughs> giant giant radioactive lizard that walks through and stomps on people every five feet you know it's uh I, I think that's sort of that's sort of a given in their cinema that you know there's going to be a big disaster and we're going to show people dying so because we're used to it you know just the, the whole idea of you know disaster made for to be to be shown with popcorn mm. i you know wh- how far can you go because right now you've got the entire world collapsing where else are filmmakers going to go now how are they going to well, but talking? you know they've, they've they've done this before if you go back and look at some of the 19 you know the the, the 1960s um 1970s science fiction they've got movies like when worlds collide and things um i may be off by a decade or two but you know, it was about, they, they had these stories about the end of the world. The difference was, is that when the worlds collided, it was like these two globes on a string that you could barely see. 
when worlds collide. Written in the stars is a message of doom for this, our world. And now in the most shattering experience the screen has ever given you, Paramount tells what could happen within your lifetime when worlds collide. An astronomer checks and double checks his horrifying discovery. A distant star racing through space toward an inevitable collision with this planet. The United Nations meet in emergency session. All conflicts pale before this threat from another world. If you wait until the danger is visible to the naked eye, it will be too late to escape. High on a mountaintop, an army of scientists work desperately to build this giant rocket, this modern Noah's Ark, to carry a few picked survivors of our doomed civilization to a new life on another world, reaching the heights of self-sacrifice, the depths of the animal lust for survival as they fight to be among the few who can be saved. Let's take the ship away from them! Come on! Fighting among themselves, fighting against time, as doomsday is upon them. I think all you scientists are crackpots. Nothing is going to happen. When worlds collide, you'll see the most amazing, awe-inspiring scenes ever put on film. The forces of nature unleashed in all their terrifying force. Tremendous tidal waves smashing New York City. The molten fires from the bowels of the earth gushing out to consume our world. You know, now they've gotten to the point to where the effects are so fancy that that sort of takes center stage. Whereas in the old films, it was all about the people going, oh, what are we going to do? Um, what, you know, we, we need a plan. We must find some scientist to help us. You know, now it's just about people running from disaster to disaster. And then all the exposition in between with all the fancy CGI and exploding buildings and uh, yeah. Yeah, I know. I know a guy who used to do special effects. Like he's a classmate of mine. He just says, "Oh yeah, I have to watch 2012. You know what? Because special effects. Yeah, that is what yeah. the end of the world is now. Just special effects. Well, and eventually that's what all our actors will be. I think we're probably going to see a lot of that in Avatar. Um, and you know, ultimately the the digital actor may replace the real actor. Who knows? That's enough speculation on our end. Um, let's move on to talk about some more tangible things uh, with our East screen discussion for this week. And unfortunately, uh, as Kevin and I were talking about um, prior to the start of our podcast, um, I'm not bringing very much to the table this week because I haven't seen any films recently. Um, being quite busy with work and uh, with Halloween and everything that's been happening, I haven't had a chance to get out to the cinema. I did want to get out and see Rebellion. Um, just haven't had a chance to make it. So Kevin is going to be sort of leading the way for both our East screen pick and our West screen pick this week. And our East screen film is going to be Rebellion. So Kevin, can you give us a bit of a synopsis and uh, some of your thoughts and then I'll chime in with any questions. Sure thing. It's a lot of pressure, Paul. <laughs> I'm sure you can handle it. You are the golden rock. Oh, God. No, I'll try to be as uh, linear as possible when I talk about Rebellion. Um, Rebellion um, is the latest uh, triad film by Herman Yao. Um, even though it was delayed by a year, this is his fourth film this year, if I'm correct. Um, and this one, sadly, is kind of the weakest one out of the four. Um, Rebellion takes place in one night. It's about a gang in a quote-unquote southern district. Although you've been to Hong Kong, you can tell it's Mong Kok. Um, this, this organization, this crime organization is kind of unusual because they have a, a, they have a long period of peace because they have about five sort of middle management bosses who have essentially kept the peace and not fight for a long time. But uh, of course, one night, one fateful night, um, a boss named Jimmy is gunned down in front of a restaurant. So then his 
and instead of um giving the the job to his second in command who was played by Chapman Toe uh doing the villain thing here um the boss's wife played by Ada Choi who spends most of the movie in the car off off in Taiwan um gives the second in command to his bodyguard uh played by Sean Yu uh the thing is Sean Yu has been drunk pretty much all night because uh it was his birthday so he's trying to sober himself up with um universe's favorite actress elaine kwong um wandering around town um dealing with the other four four bosses played by uh, paul wong um conroy chan um jun kun musician who i'm surprised to see here and really is was quite good in the film and um anson learn uh kind of a really weak presence here in the film but that's okay because that's the way his character is so i mean that that about sums up the film so within the entire night you got these four bosses um, sort of conniving, trying to trick each other, double-crossing each other, and essentially leading this whole thing to a gang war. Um, and of course, there's a twist ending, which I'm not going to review here, but it's not really satisfying. Um, the problem is that Sean Yu's character, who is supposed to be the main character of the film, is really not that interesting, especially since he's sort of drunk for supposedly drunk most of the film. So then you got scenes of him sort of puking, like wandering around, not really knowing what he's talking about. Instead, the really interesting part comes in the middle when these four bosses are doing the double crossing thing. And the shame is that these four characters are actually more interesting than the main character. Mm -hmm. And um, that's really quite troubling because then you have the middle part divided evenly pretty much among these four guys. And uh, as, um, one of our friends uh, said uh, during discussion about the film, you know, you at, by the end of the film, you kind of want to see a prequel of these four characters, how they came about, how they reached where they are right now. And I, it, it surely will make a more interesting triad film. Mm. So sort and of the, a turning point for Rebellion. Right, a turning point for Rebellion, except because these actors you got these musician turned actors paul wong uh who was on in beyond june kun they turning really solid performances um actually the quote-unquote real actors are kind of disappointing here i mean sean Yu, uh, i actually like sean Yu as an actor um uh, do you like sean Yu, paul um i i've he's i can say he's been in a couple of my favorite films um but he has done some sort of dregs before also so he he's a hit or miss for me and it, it really depends on who's directing and and uh, who he's working with i think among the the young male stars i think he's one of the more i wouldn't say he's versatile but he's one of those that i don't mind watching mm. on the screen um he has a certain presence here but the, the problem is that his character is not written very well mm. um and obviously you got the uh, I, I'm afraid to give a spoiler here, but you got an ending that feel like it doesn't really take the genre where it needs to go. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, um, I guess, China friendly, I guess is the word. Um, and it doesn't really convince. It's not really convincing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why you know that a prequel about these characters would never be made because it, it would be, it would have been a tri fully triad story in these four guys five guys including the gun down boss they would have to get away by the end of the film mm. and that's sad that's what the hong kong even the hong kong triad genre has has gone to this this just sort of like a limped version of what it used to be do you think that's because it's trying to get um playtime in the mainland or is this sort of not not attempting to do so is it sort of sticking to traditional conventions Watching the first two acts, I wouldn't think that they were trying for mainland. Um, they were trying for 2B because um, while they did include some Cantonese bad words, you could tell a lot of characters were dubbed in order to change the category pre-rating it got last year to a 2B. But in the final third, you you start to see the ugly kind of China-friendly um, beast rearing his head, mm. kind of popping out a little bit, bits, bits and pieces, and they start to really quickly pick up what's going on here. So you, you said that um, this the, the narrative basically takes place over one night. I mean, yes. is this are they doing things here like we might have seen elsewhere in say one night in Mongkok or PTU, or is it is it playing with you know the the time or the, or the the structure of the narrative narrative at all, or is it pretty just straightforward linear storytelling? Oh, I wish they would be tighter in the storytelling because for a story in one night rebellion. 
um, the pacing of rebellion is quite loose. You never have a sense of what time it is. Mm. Uh, for some reason, for the entire movie, the streets are empty, but you you kind of know that the story takes place over a course of longer than just two hours, three hours. Um, so I wish they would have, because this is something they could have fixed in script writing, is that you make the, you tell the story in you know, a tighter pacing and just generally tighter structure. It would be actually quite a compelling film. But right now it's just sort of, it feels loose and the pacing is a little strange and it doesn't excite or doesn't tell the story as 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 uh, quickly as it should. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, sadly, Herman Yasmin had a really solid year. Even Turning Point, to a to a degree, is is entertaining. Is an enjoyable film. Rob Rebellion is not really a total bust. I wouldn't call it. I wouldn't say it qualifies for a four for four for Herman Yasmin this year. In sort of summing everything up, would you say that this is a a you know a, still a must see film, or do you think people should wait for video or maybe catch it if it comes on cable? Um, if you like the actors, um, like Sean Yuena Choi, Chapman Toe, who is okay here, but nothing special. Um, or if you're interested in seeing what these musicians, Hong Kong musicians do as actors, or if you like Herman Yao, I, mean, I say check it out on DVD. Uh, otherwise, it is an entertaining film worth watching if it comes on TV. But I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it um, a good film. So, sad. All right, well, let's move on to our West Screen film for this week. And once again, Kevin is going to take the lead to talk about This Is It, the docudrama of Michael Jackson's last uh, rehearsal performances. And I'm assuming there's there's more to it than that. Um, I'm very curious to know sort of how long the film is and and what they did with it in terms of, you know, editing or interviews or things like that. So, Kevin, can you give us a bit of a of an insight into This Is It and some of your thoughts about it? Sure. Um, I said earlier that uh, I wouldn't go see this film. Yes, that's that's true. But um, because of this new review job, I have to I had to watch it. Um, and uh, actually, when you call it a docudrama, Paul, actually, it's not quite accurate because the film plays like a DVD extra that they would have put on the the concert concert DVD actually if the concert had happened. Um, this is it is essentially a concert film without the audience. Mostly it focuses pretty much only on Michael Jackson as a performer, uh, how he puts on this concert. Um, and the film is mostly made of his uh, rehearsal footage, even though they cut between several different rehearsals. Most of the film is with the music remixed, him singing, performing. So, so how long is it? 111 minutes. That's quite, that's um, quite extensive. Yes, but it actually goes, goes back very quick because they would show the performance of an entire song. So those usually take about four minutes. So if you calculate this, it would be maybe 15 songs. Because in between, then they would show some interview, which is kind of creepy because it was all made for his personal library. So he got interviews with his crew, with uh, dancers, talk about how great Michael Jackson is and hold, and talk about how presence he has. So instead of that, the, the stuff that really convinces you that Michael Jackson is a great performer is showing how much he has control over the entire show. Um, you would see him uh, pretty much involved in every aspect of the concert. Um, he would stop in the middle, uh, telling the what the basis, what kind of uh, chord he should do, or in, in the, he would show up to the, the, sh the shooting of the additional footage, uh, when they go up on the screen. Um, and yeah, it, if anything, the movie shows how good of a performer Michael Jackson still is at his age, mm -hmm. even though, you know, uh, the obvious conclusion. And like I said, you wouldn't know that this is a film, this is not a film that commemorates Michael Jackson at all. Mm -hmm. um, the film never mentions his death. Um, and it's simply about the concert. And it does, I think it sells what is successfully. It, it, to me, it sells that um, the concert would have been really great if he had, you know, been alive mm -hmm. to put it on. And, you know, I bought it, I think is it would have been quite a great show. And um, and that's what the film is trying to convince you. And that's what it convinces me because Michael Jackson, who's He's dance. He's dancing quite well. Um, his voice is still there, even though he has this constant um, insistence on preserving his voice. Um, and even though when he talks to his crew member, you can tell kind of he's not 
all there mentally in terms of his speaking kind of like me um he is still a very very good performer and the concert would have been really great if he had put it on mm -hmm. and that's what this it is it just shows it just proves that michael jackson was still is still the king of pop so but i mean if this is just rehearsal footage i i would i would imagine that it's a lot of you know starts and stops and 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 starting up again and wait 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 and does does the pacing of the the film because it's simply rehearsal um does does that play a factor at all no um there are a few songs where they would yeah they stop they stop and start and start and stop but most of it because they are cutting in between several different rehearsals even for the same song so they would manage to cut together the entire song most of the time mm -hmm. and they also remix like i said they also remix the audio so when you watch it in a in a in a theater really good audio you get really involved into the songs you don't even you can you know some points you can't even tell the sign audience mm -hmm. you feel like you're just watching the actual concert and at one point i went to a midnight show and at one point i think i heard someone in the back applaud mm -hmm. and even the midnight show there was only maybe 20 25 people everyone applauded at the end so it shows that it, if you're a fan of Michael Jackson, uh, fans of Michael Jackson generally really enjoyed this film because that's the Michael Jackson they remember. And that's what you see on screen. Mm -hmm. So now, even for uh, Money Grab, um, I think it's quite a classy film. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's it, it, it. I would imagine there are more documentaries coming. Uh, and from what it sounds like, at least this one um, is sort of fulfilling the final legacy of putting on the show that would have been, uh, in a sense, um, which I think is interesting. What about the the quality of the film, though? I, I would imagine that the footage that they're doing, if this was just be, being done for sort of uh, DVD extras, that maybe it was being done handheld or digital, um, is there a quality issue in, in any of the footage? Um, visually, it's not well. Visually, because um, it looked like either DV or HD. I couldn't tell. It was for for archival purposes for Michael Jackson Library. So yes, some of the visually, some of it is kind of rough. Um, except for the video footage that they shot already, like there was a, a trailer 3D, which would be great, um, and uh, a black and white sequence where Michael Jackson gets into an action scene with Humphrey Bogart. Those were completely polished and those were already done. Um, but yes, the, the concert footage itself, um, they were shot on DV, so sometimes they're kind of rough. But like I said, um, audio, they remixed all the songs, uh, so the bass is thumping quite quite nicely. The music is it, it, it's remixed quite nicely. So like I said, watch it in the theater with good, really good stereo system, a really good digital digital system, then you would get really, it, it, it's really easy to get involved with the film. And it's, I think... Um, it's a good thing that it wasn't trying to be a documentary. Like I said, it was mainly trying to be a concert film. And for that, that's why. Um, that's what made this sit work. There was no talking heads. Um, they didn't stop for anything about Michael Jackson other than the fact that he's a, as a musician. Mm -hmm. So as a music film, I think that's what probably the best thing, that best way to label the film. So would, what would be your rec recommendation then for, say, um someone who maybe isn't a huge fan maybe likes a couple michael jackson songs um versus somebody who's um a, a pretty big fan of just music or concerts a concert goer in general would you what would you recommend for them in terms of is this a must see in the theater or can some people wait for video i think non-cynical uh casual fans of michael jackson should go see this. Uh, of course, fans of Michael Jackson have already seen this. But if you're cynical about the whole fact that it's a rehearsal footage, blah, blah, you know, even then, I say try and watch it. I think um, it, it works pretty hard to convince even the cynical fans that this is a film worth, worth showing. And I, yeah, I, I surprisingly liked it. Let's move on to our Flying Buddha Picks of the Week. Um, and Kevin, this week you have a film that you've already talked a little bit about 
in the news section that you're going to talk about for us, um, which is what? Yes, this the Korean film, The Housemaid. Um, made in the 1960s, uh, 1960 actually, um, director Kim Ki-young. Uh, There's a sort of a thriller, a domestic thriller about um, probably the worst housemaid in Korea. Um, I don't want to give too much of a plot away, but it's about a family that uh, sort of a well-off family that hires a housemaid for their new house. And um, she's kind of a strange person and it's sort of um, her and her alone um, essentially takes this family down on a sort of a downward spiral and actually breaks it apart. And in, it's a story of uh, jealousies, of sex, murder, um, uh, things like that, extramarital affair, things like that. Um, it's, well, I watched it with audience at the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival. Uh, you can watch it for free online. But um, it's one of those films that we watch it now it's quite um, a midnight cult film kind of feel. Like you can, you can hear the audience getting into it, kind of laughing at the unintentional funny moments and, and sort of having a lot of fun. Um, so even though it, you know, I'm sure back then in 1960, it was a very scary, a very shocking film. Today, this is sort of tame, but it has a sort of a camp value to it. That makes it a lot of fun. Um, the, the woman, the actress, I don't know her name right now, that plays a housemaid was quite excellent, even though the rest of the cast isn't. Um, I think as both uh, sort of a his study of history of Korean cinema, this is done um, during the one year that Korea was between military regimes and enjoyed a democratic government. So it was quite rare to see a film this dark in 1960. Uh, so as both a study of Korean cinema history and and just as people, generally for people who like campy black and white films, I think The Housemaid is a great choice. Uh, like I said earlier, you can watch it for free online at the uh, oldterrors.com, or better yet, um, buy the Korean DVD uh, on, of course, our favorite online retailer, yesasia.com. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. Uh, my pick for this week is uh, a movie that I often use to sort of kick off the holiday season. Um, which for me kind of starts in early November and rolls through uh, Thanksgiving, U.S. holiday, and into Christmas. Um, and that is the film Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which is a very old film, 1987, directed by John Hughes, starring Steve Martin and the late but great John Candy, um, who are both, they're just uh, an... They have a really great chemistry uh, in this film. And it was a film that I remember seeing uh, when I was much, much younger, obviously back in 87, that didn't really resonate uh, as well with me back then because I was young, um, I hadn't traveled much, and and so the experiences that these guys were going through on the screen um, were were not quite there for me. But having traveled a bit more, having to travel back to the States now, either once or twice a year, and some of the experiences that I've gone through, um, I can relate much, much, much more with this film uh, than I was than I used to be able to. But it is, uh, it is a story of um, a man, Neil Page, played by Steve Martin, who basically starts out two weeks before Thanksgiving. Um, so again, I think it's a very appropriate November film. And he's trying to get home. He works in the city, and he's so, sort of working apart from where his family lives and he's trying to fly back home and because of things like the weather um, and just all around misfortune he's not able to make his flight and he ends up bumping into John Candy who plays uh, this gentleman uh, Del Griffith who's a complete opposite if if Steve Martin's character is very um, prim proper businesslike and a little bit anal retentive uh, John Candy is very loud boisterous um, sort of happy-go-lucky, and initially the two, um, uh, at least Dell's character, really rubs uh, Steve Martin's character Neil the wrong way, but they end up having to rely on each other to sort of get around and ultimately try and get back home. And the film, is, it's got some um, somewhat classic comedy moments. Looking back on it, um, some people who've never seen the film before might think it's a little bit dated, but it still holds up very well because much of the focus is on 
traveling, on being stuck in airports, on cars breaking down, on not being able to get hotel rooms and things that if you've traveled much at all, you've probably encountered at some point, probably nothing to the degree uh, that these two individuals go through. Um, but the film is is very interesting. Again, it's a John Hughes film who was mostly known for doing films like The Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles. This was a bit more of a mature departure um, for him at this time. And the film has a very uh, interesting ending. Um, and if you've seen the film, you'll know that the very final shot, the very final scene um, is is one that sort of resonates it's it's a very happy moment, but at the same time that it resonates with a with a type of sadness that I think was very specific to John Hughes um, in some of the work that he did. And um, of course, he had worked with I think he'd worked with John Candy in some other movies. I think he did uh, Uncle Buck uh, with him. Um, but this is again, this is one of my favorite John Hughes films, and this is one that's sort of an annual tradition for me. I like to start off uh, the holiday season. And then I go through a whole slew of other holiday films that I watch each year, year, things like White Christmas and It's a Wonderful Life and and other films. And maybe I'll talk about some of those uh, in future shows. But I would recommend that if you haven't seen this film, definitely try and give it a try. It is available both as digital downloads on various places, and you can find it fairly cheaply on DVD. Um, and it's really funny, and it's a it's a good holiday film if you're looking forward to the holidays and you need something to sort of kickstart you and get you in that mood. Have you seen the film, Kevin? Yes, I watch it every once in a while when it, when it was on American cable TV. And yeah, it's quite an enjoyable um, road movie. And like you said, the sort of inherent sadness in the end um, makes it quite an affecting film. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it's nice to see sort of Steve Martin playing the straight guy. Yeah, yeah. Although he does have he does have a moment where uh, he basically uh, has he's he's just gotten to a point where he's had enough, and he lets off this long slew of f bombs, one after the other, after another, after another. And I guess you know back in the eighties, this was a pretty big deal um, mm-hmm. in a film to to sort of use the f word. In, in in such a repetitive manner and sequence, but he you know he does it in a way that's that's humorous and and not overly offensive, and you really feel for the guy. I mean, he really generates this sense of empathy as if you're 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 feeling yeah I've been there I know what you're going through and I've wanted to say that exact same thing, um you know at, at certain times. <laughs> No, Mom's gonna do the turkey. Yeah, Dad wants ambrosia, so I guess we gotta get those miniature marshmallows. And I'll do the crescent rolls, and you do the cranberry. You know I can't cook. (laughs) (coughs) Yeah, well, I'll see you tomorrow, then. Gobble, gobble. (laughs) Oh, bye-bye. Welcome to Marathon. May I help you? Yes. How may I help you? You can start by wiping that dumbass smile off your rosy cheeks. Then you can give me a automobile, a Datsun, a Toyota, a Mustang, a Buick, four wheels and a seat. I really don't care for the way you're speaking to me. And I really don't care for the way your company left me in the middle of nowhere with keys to a car that isn't there. And I really didn't care to walk down a highway and across a runway to get back here to have you smile at my face. I want a car right now. I see your rental agreement. I threw it away. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, what? You're f***ed. I always watched it on TV, so I had no idea the scene exists. Oh, really? Yeah, no, you've got to get get the DVD version and look for the scene where he goes back to the, the rental car company. He's just had enough, and he just... 
unleashes, and it's a really great scene. Great. Um, that's my Thanksgiving unit. I think that's going to wrap things up for this episode. Um, again, we ho- hope to be back next week and have some other films to be talking about. I think uh, the local film 721, is it? Uh, is yes, starting this week. Um, uh, also at you, the end of Daybreak, uh, definitely recommend it. Yeah, and you've, you've already seen 721, but I haven't. I'm going to try and catch it this week, and we can maybe talk about that next week, as well as what other... Uh, whatever other films we manage to catch between now and then. So if you'd like to follow along, as always, you can catch us on the website, www.kongcast, that's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. And if you'd like to keep up with what Kevin's doing, he's got his blog over at the lovehongkongfilm.com page. And I want to give a little little bit of a shout-out to um, his fellow blogger, Sandy Lung, who's been moving and he hasn't updated his blog in a while but he's now moved and back and up and running and blogging again so uh, if you get a chance once you've read through the golden rocks blog you can jump over to uh, sandy's blog and take a read at what's happening with him and as always if you want to follow along with the day-to-day exciting life that is the golden rock um kevin where can people find you at Yes, you can find me uh, on Twitter at uh, the Golden Rock, one word. You can also uh, soon find me at the newly launched movie section uh, on the Hong Kong Yellow Page site, www.yp.com.hk. Um, I will let Paul know when the site launches, so um, he'll let everyone know how to follow my other reviews, non-Asian So until next time, as always, we will wish you good viewing, and we'll see you next week. See you next week, everyone.